That's good. Thank you. This evening, I want to speak about the theme of death. The reflection of, or on this topic, and the contemplation of this topic is one of the primary themes of the Dharma. And the Buddha spoke often of the value of giving attention to this theme, to this aspect of our experience or our life and what it represents for us. Death is encountered in the story of the Buddha as one of the heavenly messengers, one of the features of life which his encounter with profoundly changed the direction of his life. And so bringing this, bringing this theme to mind is something that has great power for us, that offers us an immense amount. It's often the case that culturally we keep it all kind of hidden away. There's a, an unwillingness, a, an awkwardness or a a very strong urge to avoid really facing the truth of this aspect of life. And there's a way in which it's easy for us to, in fact, live a life in the Western world where we don't really encounter the, the harsh and the challenging elements of what this represents for us, unless we seek it out. But in that we equally fail to receive the the immense benefits, the profoundly transformative insight that it can offer us. So, it's a kind of an interesting theme, isn't it? I hope it's interesting. Because of that, in a way, slightly hesitant relationship we might have to engaging with it. It was rather interesting to us in the, in, um, the centre at, in England where I'm based, Gaia House. When we were purchasing a new building 12, 13 years ago, it, was a, it had been a convent in its previous incarnation. And there was ourselves, a small retreat centre looking to get a bigger premises, and a, a holiday home and an old people's home, sort of a holiday complex and a people's, um, old people's home with the three different, different organizations that were looking to buy this. And one of the interesting features of the place was that it, have a it has a graveyard in it. And for us, it was like, great, there's a graveyard on this place. How wonderful. <laughs> for the old folks' home and for the people wanting to make a sort of like a, a, holiday, you know, a family holiday complex out of it, it was really like, hmm, that's not a great thing. And it was very interesting, striking to see. And in fact, for the, the sisters of the order who were selling it, they, they gave it to us in the end, even though we weren't able to offer quite as much as one or two of the other bidders could, because they felt the alignment with spiritual practice. But I think also because they really saw that we were happy and appreciative to have this graveyard, which is where the members of their order had been buried, and which part of the deal was that the remaining members of the order could still be buried if they wished when they died. So this was a real asset for us, for Gaia House. And just interesting, again, that sense of how unusual it is to think 
of that as an asset in one's grounds. How many organizations might feel that to be the case? And recently, we were very fortunate to receive from a, a, a long-time meditator at Gaia House, who's also now a recently graduated doctor, a human skeleton. And we have an actual human skeleton at Gaia House now, which is, again, for some people, it's a bit like, and there was a bit of controversy around it, as you might imagine, like, what do we want one of those things here for? You know, isn't that going to scare people off or put them off? And yet, from the point of view of the teachers, it's like, wow, what a precious thing to have. What a precious thing to have. because it speaks directly to us in a way that it's sometimes hard to hear or to be spoken to. The fact, the truth, the reality and the implications of death, how willing are we to really let them in? How open are we to the, the absolutely unnegotiable nature of what this is about. How open? We've all been in situations where we've heard a piece of news about someone known closely or not so closely. That suddenly they're had a medical, and they've discovered something that's life-threatening. Perhaps that's been some of the people here's own experience. Or we've known someone who one day we knew them, a friend, a family member, or distant acquaintance, and the next day we heard that they'd died. This has happened for all of us, I imagine. And what happens when we encounter that experience? What happens for us? There's a, there's a starkness and a, sometimes a harshness to that. But there's also something incredibly vital in the experience. And it speaks to us of the vulnerability of life and the preciousness very directly very clearly. This soft human body, this form, this living, breathing organism, this is subject to accident, to illness, to aging, and inevitably to death. This is so. You know this. You don't need me to sit up here and tell you this. And yet, do we know it? Do we really know it? Is a question that it's always worth, worth asking oneself. In the, the Indian uh, sort of spiritual parable and great epic, the um, Mahabharata, there's a, a passage where the hero of the particular story, Anjuna, is going into battle and Krishna is his charioteer. 
There's a number of dialogues that take place between them, but in one of the dialogues, Krishna, who represents wisdom, is asked by Arjuna. He says, tell me with your great vision of all the universe, what is the greatest miracle that you see? And Krishna's response is, the greatest miracle in this universe is that while people see others around them dying all the time, they somehow believe it will not happen to themselves. And this is indeed a miracle. And because of this remarkable capacity we have, we're asked to contemplate this fact. And the Buddha encouraged it, as I said, as a regular practice. The charnel ground contemplations that he encouraged were to go to places which in his time bodies were just left to decompose and places outside of the, the town, charnel grounds. And he suggested going and observing the bodies in their various stages of decomposing and just contemplating, this will happen to my body. My body will not escape this. Now, again, it sounds like, what do we want to do that for? We're not going to, you know, that's hardly going to cheer me up after a hard day at the office. And yet, there's something about it. If we would engage with this, and that's really the invitation of my choosing this topic, to engage with this from a place of interest and from, from really a sense of, what might this offer to me? There's a, an epitaph on a, on a gravestone in a cemetery in, I, I forget where, but somewhere in England. And it's got carved upon it these words. It says, Remember, friend, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you must be. Prepare yourself to follow me. And it's like, what a wonderful offering to leave. It's really your last gift to the world, you know, to put that on a gravestone and invite people to consider that truth. Now in the monasteries, and, uh, and that is one of the practices of daily reflection. It's like contemplating. I have not gone beyond death or eight. I will be subject to this. Just remembering that, just knowing that. What happens if we really let that in? What happens if you really let that in? Because what I think it does and what my experience is with this is that it, it really brings a sense of vital interest in life. It brings a sense of engagement. We, we can't take for granted this situation that we're in. We really can't. Every day, every day, people who yesterday had thought they would still be here today are not. And today, people who think they will be here tomorrow will not be. It happens like that again and again and again. And we have no guarantees. We have no guarantees. In terms of averages, we could say, oh, we've got a fair way to go. But averages don't tell us anything about specific experience. They only tell us about 
collective experience. So it's certainly my wish and hope that all of us will be here tomorrow. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be. But there's no absolute reason why it should be. And so how does that affect you? Does it feel like, God, oh, this guy's, you know, it's kind of gloomy and sort of it's put a bit of a damper on it. My retreat was quite good up till now and now it's sort of a bit, you know, God, mindfulness of the breath sounds a lot more sort of exciting. How does it affect you? Because there's a certain vitality, as I said, a certain, wow, you know, one day we'll breathe in and then we'll breathe out. And the in-breath won't come in. And that'll be it. That out-breath will just go out, and that'll be it. Always happens on an out-breath. You take another in-breath, you're still here. And then the out-breath. So that sense of... just adds a little extra frisson to that last moment of the out-breath, doesn't it? Have you ever been waiting for the in-breath? It's not that you need to wait for it, but it's like, huh? Look, it's come. Wow. Still here. That sort of vitality that's really in the moment when we remember. And equally the sense of preciousness that comes when we contemplate this truth. The sense of the preciousness of life, of this life, of our life, of any life, in fact, is only there and is only revealed because this fact of death stands as a gateway or a marker in the journey. Because if we were all going to be here forever, why, why would we be particularly concerned with anything, in fact, that important? It's like, what makes things important is the fact that this isn't forever. And there's a sense of preciousness that comes with that, of this opportunity for practice, or, or the life that, that, for me, I feel it very keenly when I bring to mind and remember a, a small placard that's uh, in the garden at one of the monasteries, one of the Buddhist monasteries in England, which I like to visit. And it's got on it a name and a single date and a poem. And the poem goes... The cherry blossoms cover the hillsides for but a few days. Any longer, and we would not treasure them so. And underneath it's got a name, Little Sam. And a date. A single date. And just what that speaks of the sense of the preciousness of a life that was just one day. Not made less precious by that brevity, but more so. More so in proportion to that brevity, in fact. And so from that one can sense or perhaps feel that quality of what 
recognizing or reflecting on the fact of death brings to our life right here. It's that sense of, oh, this, yes, because it's not forever, it is precious. It actually gives the meaning to our life rather than any way taking it away. And we're invited to remember again and reflect again on the fact that this is a precious opportunity we have, this life. The relative fortune and circumstances that enable us to be able to do what we're doing here, to hear the Dharma, to practice the Dharma, to realize the Dharma, the teachings of wisdom, of compassion, of liberation, this is precious beyond compare. And yet so easily in the retreat, and we've been going for quite a few days now, and it's not too bumpy for many, and all well, the bumps have at least smoothed out a bit for others. It could sometimes be just a case of, well, yeah, let's, we can sort of cruise from here. Anyone have that urge? Sort of just, yeah, we can just sort of, it's all downhill. Now, of course, it is downhill, but in another way. When we remember that kind of downhill from here, then we say, okay, okay. And the fact of our death also gives perspective on what's really important. What do we really want to prioritize for our attention, for our efforts, for our development, for our engagement with this world? There's a, a beautiful teaching by Don Juan, the, the shaman teacher of Carlos Castaneda, whose uh, the teachings are recorded in a series of books, starting with the teachings of Don Juan. And he, he speaks of this at one point. I'd like to just share what he had to say, or a piece of it. He says, Death is your eternal companion. It is always the hunter, and it is always to your left at an arm's length. It has always been watching you, and it always will, until the day it taps you. How can you feel so important when you know your death is stalking you? The thing to do when you are impatient is to turn to your left and ask advice from your death. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death just makes a gesture to you, or if you catch a, catch a glimpse of it, or if you just have the feeling that your companion is there watching you. The fact of your death is never pressed far enough. It is the only wise advisor that you have. And whenever you feel that everything is going wrong and you're about to be annihilated, turn to your death and ask if that is so. Your death will tell you that you're wrong that nothing really matters outside of its touch. Your death will tell you, I haven't touched you yet. To ask, ask death's advice is to drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to men and women who live their lives as if death will never touch them. That sense of dropping the cursed pettiness. He's not mincing words, but do we recognize that? how so easily we get caught up with the things that aren't really what's important for us. 
And somehow we know that, but we forget. Do we recognize how that happens? One of the things that happens for us when we recognize the truth of death, not just our own death, but the death that will touch each and every life around us, is do we feel a communion with others, a a shared bond and relationship based in that reality? And there was a kind of an experiment in a way that was done some several years ago now in a in a maximum security prison. I think it may have been in Texas, but I'm not sure. But normally the death row inmates are all kept separate in solitary confinement for extended periods of time and have very little opportunity to contact or have relationship with each other. But there was an experiment done of creating a a workshop where they would um, engage in various activities and they had the opportunity to interact with each other in ways that normally wouldn't be permitted in such a situation. And it was observed in this, in this experiment that these incredibly tough, and at least many of them tough, hard-bitten characters in this incredibly difficult and challenging situation were remarkably kind and tender in their interactions with each other. And this was a little mystifying because that's not what normally happens in prison culture, which is quite aggressive and um, scary. I would have to say. And so they were asking some of the inmates and the response was, was quite clear from them. Saying, why, how, how does this come to be? And the inmates said, well, you know, we're like this with each other, yeah, because we all know that each of us is going to die. And somehow the fact of that getting close enough to be able to see it makes a difference. You know, the Buddha once said to his monks and nuns who had been involved and there's these passages where you hear and they talk about the engaging in sort of argumentation and stabbing each other with verbal daggers is the kind of the phrase that's used and he says to them how can you quarrel knowing that you will die So the fact of our death brings us right up to the point of what's truly important for us and tells us, asks us, implores us not to turn away from that. Sometimes we hear the call and yet there's easy the sense of, well, as someone said in the group, well, yeah, enlightenment sounds kind of interesting, but I've got a few other things to do first. You know, fair enough. Why not? But... How much time do you know that you have for those things? And the Buddha, in his encounter with death in the the story where he chose to leave the, the palace, as Heather related a few days ago, his reflection after these encounters was seeing that he was subject to this, he's being myself subject to birth, aging, sickness, death. Why should I pursue other things that are also subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death? Being subject to birth, aging, sickness, and death 
Would it not make more sense to seek that which is not subject to birth, to aging, to sickness, to death? And this, this was the turning, the shift, you could say, from the the worldly to the spiritual orientation that was at the beginning of his journey and his quest and that led to his his own realization and the teachings which he shared and which we are practicing together here. So that sense of turning towards that which is most important. For myself it came in some ways not dissimilar. I was living in uh, Auckland, just the largest city in New Zealand, and working in a high-powered professional context, not at all enjoying it. Quite sure that I was going to leave, but actually, to be honest, too scared to give it up because I had really no sort of financial security behind me apart from what I produced myself and no sort of family per se, and of course those can sound like excuses, but it was just, that was my inner experiences. I couldn't quite say I'm out of here because I didn't know what else I might end up doing with my life. But I knew I didn't want to do that, and yet I couldn't quite let it go. And a dear friend of mine who I'd uh, gone through school together with and whose family had been sort of a family for me when mine had come apart, and I'd spent a lot of time with he he got ill. He had a routine operation that went wrong. As a result, he died over the course of six months, slowly and tragically, aged in his early 20s, as was I. And in the end, he actually said to them, when his body had got to the point where it was pretty well uninhabitable, you know, just turn off the machines. I want the last bit at least to be sort of without the drugs and without the support systems, and he died. And it was a very powerful and heart-wrenching thing for me to face the loss of my friend. But it gave me a gift for which I'm to this day, and I imagine my whole life will continue to be grateful, because what it said to me was, do it now. Do it now. You can't rely on being able to do this later. And so I quit the job, and I left. And I eventually found my way wandering through Asia to the, the Dharma. And some ways, I don't know whether I'd have had the courage to do it without that, without that gift of my friend. I like to think I would have, but I don't know, because I hadn't up until then. And so there's this, this way in which contemplating, facing, or encountering is amongst us, I'm sure you have, some of you, if not all of you, people who we cared for, who we were close to, who we still feel close to, in fact, in conditions where their life is threatened or where their life is taken. So how would you live today if you thought, if you knew, if you understood it was the last day? What would you choose to do with it? Because when we think about this topic, when we reflect on it, I don't think, not so much thinking can sound like contemplation is about thinking it. To me, it's more about feeling into it. 
feeling what the effect is. There's the sense of, I actually, I don't want to put anything off that's important. I don't want to put anything off that's crucial. And so living in the light of death, we could say is learning and living what we need to in order to die with no regret. To not at the end look back and say, I should have. You know, there's that old saying that goes something like, nobody lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. I'm not saying you need to quit your jobs. But to look and see where and how you're finding place in your life for what is important. Plato, on his deathbed, was asked, you know, what advice have you for us? What would you say? After his life of great contemplation, he responded, he said, practice dying. A great invitation, practice dying. So what would that mean for us? What would that mean for us? One of the things we might hope to do before our time closes or comes is to be able to complete those things we've left uncompleted, to say to those people we want to say something to, I care for you, I love you, I'm sorry. Whatever it might be that we haven't said or haven't said recently, if they're important, take the opportunity when we can because further opportunities aren't always guaranteed. To make the intention to forgive ourselves and others while we have the chance. To, when we're with those we're close to, really acknowledge what we value and what we appreciate in that. For my wife and I, for many years, when we would part, and often one of us or the other, and more often myself, but also Catherine, would be going off somewhere teaching and we'd be apart for some period of time. And even sometimes when one of us just went down to the shop, we'd stop for a moment and say, I hope I see you again. Because it was true, we did. But somehow bringing that to consciousness and just acknowledge it's sort of there's a certain tender sweetness to that. It's very alive and somehow stops one taking for granted what's here. And in terms of what we wish to bring forth into this world, Stephen Levine in his book, A Year to Live, and you may be familiar with the programs where he um, facilitated, where people are invited to live their year as if they have just this year. And there's a whole program there that um, I think it could be quite powerful, though I've, it's not something I've actually participated in myself. But he, he says in his book that one of the things that he discovered in this practice was that love was the only rational act of a lifetime. Beautiful words. And just interesting, isn't it? Love is like a rational act. It's some, somehow we tend to think they're different things. But actually, in terms of true rationality, what really makes sense when we live in the light of death is 
to bring forth the caring and the love that we have within us, to bring it into this world, to bless this world with it. Those we care for, ourselves, and equally those we don't care for or don't even know. It's the only rational action. It's the only thing that makes sense in this context. And other things only make sense when we've forgotten the truth of death. So what is it that we're talking about here? This word, death. What does it refer to? What does it actually mean? Because we tend to have this association of things that are dead with death, you know, dead bodies, dead people. But what does it mean for us while we're alive? What does it mean for us while we're alive? Because we can't, when we think about death or when we think that we're thinking about death or relating to it or engaging with it, we're mostly not actually engaging with death. We're engaging with our thoughts and our associations and our concepts about it and with our emotional responses to it, to our exposure to it in whatever ways or forms that's come. But in fact, death for ourselves, what is that? It's the point at which we turn to the place where there is no reference point. There's no reference, there's no reflection back of what or how or who or even that we will be. There's no way we can tell who we will be, what we will be, how we will be, or that we will be beyond that point. And that's a wide open space of unknowing and unknowableness. And fear that we encounter in our lives in so many smaller and larger, more challenging ways, ultimately in the end comes down to this. In some way or form, fear comes back to death even if we don't necessarily see how that is. That's what it's about. And that death that we fear is actually a territory which the mind cannot enter. But in recognizing that, we can start to engage with it in another way. And so this practice comes to pay attention, to be awake, to be mindful and alert. The Buddha once said, Mindfulness is the path to the deathless. The heedless live as if already dead. When we're not present, when we're not mindful, we're simply repeating old patterns born of our history. There's no life in that. The history is what's left when we're gone. Repeating it endlessly, isn't life, isn't really fully alive. It's like getting to death before we have to. It's like, are we really in that much of a rush that we just want to be mindless? 
Because we're not really, are we? In fact, we're not in a rush at all to get to that place. We actually recognize that there's something here that's precious and profound that we're interested in. And we might be distracted from it in different ways. But if we really turn back to our life in the face of this fact of reality of death, I think it becomes a little clearer. The greatest danger we face is living our life on autopilot. That's the death that we face while we're alive, the living death. But the, the death we can actually confront is our entry into the unknown. The territory that our mind cannot travel, our intellectual conceptual mind cannot travel, but that nonetheless we can engage with. And that asks us to die into this moment. To die into this moment. This isn't easy. This is not a small ask. And it's not easy because this evokes for us or brings us into contact with grief, with loss, with the sense of this inescapable aspect of life that having entered into birth that which we have touched and been touched by in this journey will at some point be stripped away and that's hard for our hearts to hold and to meet and to bear there is no way around that for us and so we need to look at and to see what it is that makes it hard for us to turn to this territory. Because one way or another, through willingness and courage or kicking and screaming and resisting, we're going there. It's coming to us. Showing it a being near you. Sometime in the unknown, undefinable future. So what is this loss? The sense of, ah. Oh, to let ourselves feel, to recognize that. A story that, for me, really gives me the sense of it <coughs> comes, and it was related to me, by a friend who knew a woman and her husband. The woman, of her, the woman was on the flight from New York to Geneva. They went down off the Canadian coast in about 1998, I think, or late 90s. And he heard this story from the woman who was on the plane, her husband, who he knew. And apparently on this flight, the pilot realized there was something seriously wrong and so told everyone to take crash positions. And he radioed in. He was looking for an emergency landing strip. And they, the woman in this point where, and then the plane started to descend quite quickly, extremely quickly, in fact. And amongst the, the screaming and the panic and the, everything going on, it was in the middle of the night, this woman, I guess at that point, she, you know, one doesn't worry too much about the regulation. She pulled out her cell phone. She turned it on. She rang her husband. About that time, her husband felt a little strange and got up and went to walk the dog in the middle of the night. He wasn't there when the phone call came through. And so 
I don't know what she said on the message, but she left him a message. I can imagine what she might have said. It would have been something like, the plane's going down. I love you. What else could you say? But he came back from the walk and heard the message. And he's left with that. In some ways, I think when I reflect on this, that maybe it's a blessing he wasn't there because if I put myself in that way, I don't think either of us could hang up in that situation. And Would you really want to be there on the phone at that point? It's like there's a completion and a blessing in that, but uh, just feeling that, what is that? To, to have that communication coming from just a micro millimeter this side of the grave of whatever she said to her husband in that moment. We're not often given that opportunity to speak or to be spoken to from that point, that place. But what it does, and what I sense when I, and I've told this story plenty of times, and I still feel the, the potency of, of what that situation must have been. And of course it's repeated in so many ways and places and forms every day around this planet. But there's a sense of grief of that, ah. Oh, you know, the, the tenderness of the heart that takes us to a place of deeper loss, in fact, when we're really open to this territory, that that loss of connection with something or loss of contact with something or loss of the possibility of spending time with something or someone that is so deeply precious to us. What this represents for us is the, the deepest loss in the beings, in our hearts, in our life, which is the loss of contact with, with the truth of, of life, with the, the deepest, most sacred, divine, or profound. We can't put anything after those words except that, that we could call truth, or we could call the, the heart of the spiritual journey. But we don't need to put anything on it because it's, it's not found in the words. It's in the sense of what's happened to us, that we've lost contact with the depths of our life, that we've somehow taken birth, or taken form in a mode of being that's so compelled and drawn and pulled into unconsciousness, but that has the capacity and the remarkable and precious capacity to awaken in the midst of that unconsciousness, to awaken into this life, to understand, to realize what this is, to be alive, to be awake. And if we're willing to feel that loss or that sense of grief that ultimately isn't about the things that happened in our life, it's actually that deeper yearning, that calling, that drawing, that gravitational pull from the very core of our being that says, open to this, open to this. If we're willing to do that, then rather than that Grief or the fear of it standing as a barrier, it in fact starts to beckon us. It draws us, it calls and invites us. 
And in fact, it carries us. It's not something we have to do. It has its own stream or current that runs deeper beneath the surface currents of conditioning, of the momentum, of reactivity, of busyness, of all the things I need to do or sort or fix. And it's there when we don't confuse the two. It's there and it's clear and it's cool and it's warm and it flows. And we don't need to go anywhere when we're in touch with that, when we know the language which that speaks. And the language that it speaks has really one message for us. And the message is let go. Let go. Let go. Because we've understood that one day it's all going to be taken. Why not let go? It's not something we can hold anyway. Any more than we can grasp water. It runs through our fingers. When we know that it will all be taken. And it only then makes sense to let go. To not hold. To not hold on. To ideas of who we are. Or who we're not. We're close. To the touch. To the vibration. To the recognition. The revelation. Of the deathless. That the Dharma teachings point to. To be touched by this, to know the truth of this, that is not something, nor yet nothing, that cannot be located and yet ultimately cannot be avoided. This is what these teachings are inviting us to the discovery of, to the recognizing, to the realizing of. To not take birth in this world isn't about somehow avoiding ending up in a body. Because we're here, we're in a body. It's about understanding what we've done with this experience that has turned it into a possessory relationship when it's not. We're not the owners of this body or this life. <coughs> and so we might contemplate what it means to to not take birth, to, to see what would that mean for us. And a rather interesting and I find a amusing story with regard to this territory. At a, uh, a large Buddhist conference some years ago, a, 
Amank Ajalamaro, who's an American based in California these days, was asked when there was this very intense discussion about uh, birth control, contraception, abortion, sterilization, that whole ter territory. So what's the Buddhist view on all of this? And uh, Ajahn, which means teacher, looked at the questioner. He said, well, as far as I can tell, the entire Buddhist teachings are concerned with rebirth control. And having taken birth, we can let go. We can die out of that entanglement with a possessory in a possessor or from that comes from a possessory relationship to life. We can actually relax and release life from that possessory grasp, and in doing so, release ourselves. When we don't take birth in this moment or in any moment, when we don't define ourselves by what comes or what goes, by what arises and passes, the silence speaks. The stillness moves. And the space in which it all unfolds suddenly stands forward clearly. And everything unfolding somehow finds its place in that. I'd like to finish with a poem by a Native American elder, Red Hawk, entitled, The Time Comes When It Is Easier to Die. And he writes, We have to go deeper inside, like a tired miner chipping through stone. We have to dig even when we have had enough, and it is no longer worth it to get up out of the bed. The morning is cold, the grey Clouds move in low like a flock of dark crows over a picked field. That is when we have to go deeper, through another hard layer of pain. You have to be relentless to make it in this place, because it will be relentless with you. It will never stop beating and grinding, wearing you down with one more thing gone wrong. Friends will die, or their nerves will fail. Women will cease to be thrilled with you. Men will cease to be thrilled with you. And your sorry efforts to hold it all together will come to nothing. You will still tremble in the leg, go grey and dim in the face, leak more every year in your yellowed shorts. Don't be in a hurry to pack it in. The time will come when it is easier to die than to dig. The trick is to find the gold before death finds you, and then to sit there in the heart where you cannot be taken, 
while death storms and rages all around you, stealing everything in sight, but only left holding a bag full of bones. To find the gold, to sit in the heart where we cannot be taken, is to enter unconditionally into this moment, into this place that we are, and see for ourselves what it reveals. So may we all, through our practice and in our lives, have the courage to seek the wise teachings offered by the fact of death. May we be willing to step into the empty space that is right here and now to realize the deathless for our own liberation, for the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.